0: Good evening, everybody. We're here once again in Systematic Theology. We're up to session number 42, continuing to look at redemption, which once again, is God's work of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, and then applying that redemption to those that he chose before the foundation of the world. As we've looked at how God actually applies the benefits of redemption to each of his people one of the things I've emphasized is that God applies these benefits in a logical order. Some of these benefits are applied at the same time, but they're done in a logical order. God works certain things within a person first before he works others. And this logical order of the application of the benefits of salvation and the benefits of redemption is what theologians call the ordo salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. Salvation. I've been listing that order in your notes as a reminder, and they're there again tonight. And different theologians may differ a little on the steps, but here's how I've presented the steps. They're there in your notes. Election, effectual call, regeneration, repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ, justification, definitive sanctification, adoption, progressive sanctification, and perseverance in holiness. And as a quick recap, we covered what I called step zero in the ordo, which is God electing his people by name in eternity past, before the world was. Then we looked at step 1A, the effectual call. We're now in step 1B. Most people call step 1B the new birth, but theologians have a fancy name for it, as they always do, regeneration. We've seen that the new birth, or regeneration, is a recreation of our nature. A recreation of our nature. The theologian Gerhardus Voss defined it as an immediate recreation of the sinful nature by God the Holy Spirit and an in implanting into the body of Christ. God the Holy Spirit removes our hearts of stone that we had as a natu- as you know, the way that we were born as natural people. These hearts of stone is a metaphor for our hard, obstinate nature against God. He replaced it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that desires the things of God. In the previous session, I compared the heart with rivers that have a source. Rivers have a headwaters. With the river, if the headwaters are contaminated for some reason, then the streams that come from it will also be contaminated and polluted. And I likened the heart to the headwaters of three streams. The three streams are the mind, the will and the affections. In the last study, I focused on the mind and how the mind is changed by regeneration. And tonight, I wanna bring our focus to the second of these streams from the heart, the will. The will. In our unredeemed state, our hearts were polluted. The state of our hearts, the core of our moral nature was hopelessly corrupt, desperately sick, and spiritually dead. Therefore, what is downstream from the core of what we are, the heart, its the result of that spiritual deadness and corruptness. And that includes our will. What is the definition of our will? The definition of our will is our internal source of power through which choices are made. Our internal source of power through which choices are made. It's our power to make choices. Our will is distinct from our mind, but the mind does influence the will. Our will can motivate us to make choices that are informed by our minds, but often our will can be kind of disconnected from our intellect. here's an example. At Disneyland, they had a treat a while back that people nicknamed the Dole Whip Donut, the Dole Whip Donut. It was a luscious donut topped with a bunch of artificially flavored pineapple goo. My intellect told me this was not the best thing to eat. But my will directed my choice to eat it anyway, and it was delicious. So our will is our internal source of power to make choices, and we use our will to make choices every day. Some choices are not earth-shaking like the choice to eat a Dole Whip donut. Some choices are far more important. And there is one choice in particular, one use of human will which changed Everything. The very first choice that mankind had to make was the choice given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That was the first important use of the will in a human being and how Adam's will would direct him under that temptation but affect all of mankind after him. Man was originally created with truly free will. God gave Adam and Eve the advantages of being created in the image of God. The Westminster Larger Catechism phrases it like this, God made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to fall. Adam and Eve could use their will freely. God had already given them the command that they had to follow. Despite the fact that man was created by God to be elevated above the creatures, he is still a creature and must obey God. Henry Law, a 19th century pastor, said that any sin, even a sin that may seem insignificant to us, is an act of infinite rebellion that casts God from the heart It strives to tread him in the dust. So Adam and Eve were confronted with a choice in the Garden of Eden. And I'll read the familiar passage from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's command to Adam and Eve resulted in a choice. Obey and have life. Disobey and die. Adam and Eve truly had free will. At that point, they were not fallen. Their nature was not corrupted by sin. The image of God was not yet twisted and marred within them. The Westminster Larger Catechism states that Adam and Eve had power to fulfill God's command. But they were also subject to fall. The Westminster Larger Catechism summarizes how Adam and Eve used their will when they sinned. It says... Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit and thereby fell from the estate of innocence wherein they were created. Adam and Eve were left to the freedom of their own will. The choice was clear. They had the power to resist Satan's temptation. They knew what God had said about the consequences if they didn't obey but they use their will to disobey and sin. Why did they do this? We don't know. It's a mystery. But the result was that Adam and Eve, once they fell, no longer had free will. And no one in an unredeemed state after Adam and Eve, those that the scriptures describe as being in Adam, have had free will either. You know, most people tend to believe that everyone has free will. Pretty common saying. Everyone has free will. But the Reformed do not teach free will, as people tend to define it. Dr. Gordon Clark, who was a 20th century Christian philosopher, gave a definition of free will that most people would probably agree with. And his definition was this. The ability to choose between two incompatible choices with no previous power forcing a particular choice. In other words, a person with truly free will could choose one way or choose the other, and there's nothing pushing him one way or the other. Nothing inside of him constrains or forces him away from a truly free choice. Many Christians believe that the unredeemed truly have free will. They probably think in terms of free will so that God will well, no, It's kind of a way of letting God off the hook for the presence of evil in the world so that God won't be blamed for the choice of people to sin. Well, because if people truly have free will, well, the price for giving them free will is that God sort of takes a hands-off approach to people's sins since they use their free will. Since God gave man free will, man can choose good or he can choose evil, and a person could just as easily choose one or the other. So when someone sins... The moral responsibility is his alone because he had free will. God can't be blamed. He could have chosen good or he could have chosen evil. And as a quote from one of the Indiana Jones movies goes, he chose poorly. But an unredeemed person does not have truly free will. He doesn't. His will is bound by his nature. A person cannot will something that his nature does not delight in. The unredeemed person has a sin nature, so his will is bound toward evil. He cannot simply choose between good or evil or accepting or rejecting Christ just as easily one way or the other. There's a more accurate term than free will to describe the unredeemed heart. That Christian philosopher Gordon Clark instead stated that man has Free agency, free agency, not free will. Free agency means that the person chose voluntarily. No one forced him to make his decision. Nobody held a gun to his head. He exercised his own will in the decision. So he's morally responsible for his decision. Because his choices are made voluntarily, a man is answerable to the lawgiver for his actions. And then he can be rewarded or punished for his choices. And that's the definition of responsibility, the ability to be rewarded or punished for your choices. The sinner's will is not truly free because he cannot choose in accordance with God's will. But he does have free agency. His actions are not forced. His choices are voluntary. The will is a quality not of the person, but of the person's nature. In our unsaved state, our will was in bondage. Because our very nature was sin nature, our will was bound to sinful unbelief. We can only will what our nature desires. In our sinful state with sinful nature, our will was in bondage to sinful unbelief and in bondage to sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. A person's will acts in accordance with the person's nature. And we can see this in a couple of scripture passages. I'll read first from Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, verse 18. In this section, Jesus is warning that false prophets will come and that we need to be able to discern who is truly sent from God and who isn't. Jesus tells us to test the person by the fruit of their lives. And here is the test in verse 18, Matthew 7, 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. The false prophet tries to present himself as the genuine article, but inwardly he's a wolf. Jesus says that what this person is on the inside, his nature will eventually be shown by what his will, his choices lead to in his actions, his words, the fruit of his life. The ESV translation uses the words diseased tree, but the force of the original Greek is that the nature of the person is evil. His nature is not just of little value, but he actually causes harm. And then another passage that links a person's nature to their will is Jeremiah 13.23. Jeremiah 13.23. In this passage, Jeremiah, he's warning about the coming exile of Judah for their iniquity. It says... Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The Lord, through Jeremiah, pointed to the nature of a person as determining their will. Their will was accustomed to doing evil because that was their nature. Fallen man does not have the ability to come to Christ out of his own nature, his heart is corrupt. So everything downstream of the heart, the mind, the will, the affections, are polluted and corrupt. This doesn't mean that man is as evil as he could possibly be, and we've studied this before. We've studied before how God in his mercy and His what we call his common grace restrains mankind from being as evil as he could possibly be. With all the evil out there in the world, I'm sure we could imagine even greater evil. But we cannot will To come to Christ out of our own unchanged heart. This would be a hopeless situation. Except for one thing. That one thing is what we're going to see next. As we turn to Matthew chapter 19. Verse 26. Matthew 19.26. After Jesus had the encounter with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. And the young man went away sorrowful. Jesus spoke of the great difficulty of a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know, the disciples were astonished at this because it was widely held that riches were evidence of God's favor. If you were rich, God really likes you. If a rich man can't be saved, then who can be saved? Jesus then gives the answer on how a person is saved. And I'll read Jesus' response in Matthew 19, verse 26. But Jesus looked at them. And said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In our unredeemed state, our hearts are corrupt. And everything downstream of the headwaters of the heart is polluted. And that includes our will. With man, this is impossible. In our unredeemed state, we are faced with an impossible situation. But the key of hope is what Jesus then says. But, with God, all things are possible. Salvation, what it requires, is a monergistic work of God. A work of God where God works alone. We have nothing to contribute with our own works. With man, this is impossible. If we are to be saved, God must do a work within us. With God, all things are possible that work that God does monergistically, the work that God the Holy Spirit applies to us, is regeneration, the new birth. The theologian Michael Horton wrote this about our will and how it relates to our nature. He said, Our will can choose only that in which our nature delights. If our nature is in bondage to unbelief, then our will is not free with respect to God. Jesus knew why some did not believe. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. Michael Horton points out that in our unredeemed state, our will is in bondage to sin. We didn't have the capability to simply decide to choose Christ based on Gentle persuasion, using our native capability and will. You know, in churches that teach Arminianism, a doctrine that says that man has some native capability to choose Christ, they'll sometimes give a gospel presentation and then call for a response. And they will sometimes say, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and he will not infringe on your free will. If this were true, we would be without hope. If God had not changed my unredeemed heart, if God had not changed my unredeemed will, if God had taken a hands-off policy on my heart and will, then what Jesus said would have remained true of me. With man, this is impossible. But praise God, that for God's elect, the rest of the words of Jesus are applied. But with God, all things are possible. This is one reason why Regeneration is monergistic. Our will would never come to faith in the gospel in our old state. Our nature did not delight in such things before regeneration. So the will could not follow. The Father had to draw us. In other other words, in a sense, drag us. But this wasn't against our will. Instead, our will was changed. Our will was changed. Speaking of Arminianism, the notion that while we are unredeemed, we have some native ability to choose Christ. An example of this belief is the 19th century revivalist Charles Finney. We've spoken of Charles Finney before previous studies. Just the title of one of his sermons, Shouts Arminianism. That sermon title was, How to Change Your Heart. Finney really did believe that it was possible for an unredeemed person, by their own power, to change their own heart. We've seen in previous studies that the scriptures proclaim the unredeemed heart is being desperately sick. But Finney stated that it is the responsibility of the unredeemed person to change their own heart. According to Finney, you just follow Jiminy Cricket's advice, let your conscience be your guide, realize that you must change your heart, then you just apply your will toward changing to see what happens when God, who does the impossible, changes the human will i 'll read next from the Gospel of John chapter six. We looked at this passage of the last study when we looked at how regeneration changes the mind, but the passage also speaks to the will, and a person 's will before regeneration contrasted with their will after regeneration. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in John chapter 6. I'll read verses 37 to 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. "'On the last day, for this is the will of my Father, "'that everyone who looks on the Son "'and believes in him should have eternal life, "'and I will raise him up on the last day.'" So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "'I am the bread that came down from heaven.'" They said, "'Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, "'whose father and mother we know? "'How does he now say, I have come down from heaven?' Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. The crowds had then followed him across the Sea of Galilee, and they came to him seeking to be fed again. It became obvious that the crowds had fleshly motives. They didn't really believe. Jesus then confronts them with the ultimate dichotomy between those who have eternal life and those who do not. Jesus says in verse 37 that all the elect are those who the Father has already given to the Son. This election happened back in eternity past when all who the Father gave to the Son were elected by name. Verses 39 and 40 tells us that all of the elect will be brought to saving faith And are secure in Christ and will not be lost. Then the verse I want to call attention to. Who are able to believe? Verse 40 might seem to imply that anyone has the ability to have saving faith. Since it says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should should have eternal life. But verse 44, the verse I'm emphasizing, tells us who has the will to have saving faith. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here we see the divine decree of election, decreed in eternity past, carried out in history. The elect are drawn by the Father. Only the elect are drawn by the Father. And anyone not drawn by the Father cannot come to Christ. This drawing or dragging is a powerful an irresistible divine action. This drawing or dragging changes the will from obstinate and unwilling to believe, from sinful unbelief, to a fundamental change of a person's will. This person was unwilling to come to Christ before, but their will is now changed by the new birth, by the heart being regenerated, by the mind, will, and affections downstream of the heart being changed. For our will to be changed, divine grace is absolutely required. Just like we read in John six forty four, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This one sentence, said by Christ, divides the whole of the human race in two. One is elect, or one is not elect one will either be drawn or dragged by God to Christ or not. For those drawn to Christ by God's gracious action, that draw is irresistible. Augustine said this about the drawing of of the Father to Christ. He said, he does not say, has led, so that we would think that somehow our own will precedes this drawing. Who is drawn if he is already willing? And yet no one comes unless he wills. Therefore, he is drawn in wonderful ways that he may will by him who knows how to work internally upon the very wills of men. Not that unwilling men may believe, which is an impossibility, but that they may become willing from unwilling. We become willing from unwilling. This quote from Augustine starts. He does not say, has led. What God does in changing our will, it's not done by only persuasion. People can be led to do various things by a persuasive person. A very persuasive person makes a good salesman. But when God draws or drags an elect person to Christ, God isn't just using passive persuasion, God's not giving a sales presentation. As Augustine said about the words of Jesus, he does not say has led. The Holy Spirit at the point where redemption is applied changes our heart and therefore our will to create a willing heart from an unwilling heart. And I'll quote again from the theologian Mike Horton. The Spirit mediates Christ's royal ministry by subduing unbelief in the tyranny of sin giving sinners the faith that unites them to Christ so that they can receive all of his heavenly gifts. As unbelievers, we were guilty of sinful unbelief. In salvation, Christ in his office as king subdues us. Even as ancient Israelite kings fulfilled their kingly office by subduing those in opposition to them. In this work of his kingly office today, this work of subduing our opposition of sinful unbelief. It is the Holy Spirit who accomplishes this work of Christ in each of us, we who are Christians. The Holy Spirit does this by the work of the new birth, the work of regeneration within us at the moment of salvation. At the moment of regeneration, the Holy Spirit subdues the tyranny and slavery of sin for us and gives us faith that unites us to Christ. In our last session, we looked at how when our hearts are changed in regeneration, everything downstream from the heart, including the mind, is changed. When our minds are changed, our wills are also affected. The way our minds are affected is described by Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 45. And I'll read that next. John 6, 45. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The new birth affects our mind, and the way that Jesus states this is, everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This change of our minds affects our wills, making us go from unwilling to willing. Here's what the theologian Francis Turreton said about that verse: "When man learns from God, he is not indeed drawn with twisted neck, but is conquered by the truth and vanquished by a trump- triumphant delight than which nothing is sweeter, nothing more efficacious." The next passage we'll look at is in Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36. And this portion is a rich prophecy of what God was going to accomplish in his plan 600 years in the future from when God revealed this through Ezekiel. I'll be in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll read verses 24 to 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. verse 25, God reveals that he will cleanse them of sin and they would be completely clean from their uncleanness. Then the promise to God's elect, the true Israel, continues. God will give them a new heart. This, once again, is a monergistic work, a work of God alone. The Lord says, and I will give you a new heart. God's not going to just patch up the old heart, but he's going to completely replace this sanctuary of the soul. This new heart of flesh would no longer be obstinate like the stony heart they had, but soft and obedient. The result of this new heart would be a regenerated will. Before, our wills were obstinate against the will of the Lord. But verse 27 tells us the effect of a regenerated heart. And I, I will put my spirit within you. And, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It would be the Lord himself who would do the work of giving us a new will to follow his will. And notice, this isn't just persuasion. God isn't just persuading us of what's the right thing to do. And then, well, he leaves the task of changing our will to our own power. Instead, the Lord proclaims, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause you. If the Lord left changing our will up to us, we would have continued being enemies of God. We would just continue under the inertia of our sinful state, unable, unwilling to do anything else. It's a great blessing that God says to his elect... I will cause you. All this is in agreement. With what Paul commanded the Philippian believers. Which is where I'll be next. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore my beloved. As you have always obeyed. So now not only as in my presence. But much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 12 starts with the word therefore. Verse 12 comes after a section where Paul is explaining how Christ was in a state of humiliation during his earthly walk, but is now exalted. At this point, here comes the word therefore. Since we serve a risen and exalted Christ who was willingly humbled for our sakes. Therefore, we should, in gratitude, live a certain way. But even this is not under our own unaided power. Verse 13 tells us that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even our will is the result of God presently working in us our will was changed at the new birth. Then, through our Christian lives, God continues working in us to cause our will to align with his will. I'll quote from one of the articles of the Canons of Dort, where it states one of the effects of the new birth. It says, He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which, though heretofore dead, he quickens. From being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. God, in the new birth, infuses new qualities in the will. It says that the will was dead, evil, and disobedient. But in the new birth, God changes the will, rendering it good, obedient, and pliable, and enables us to good works. The 17th century English Puritan Thomas Watson wrote of a person's will, first of the will before the new birth, then contrasting it with that will after God has changed his heart. And this quote is from his work called The Mischief of Sin. And he wrote. See the desperate obstinance of sinners. They persist in sin rebelliously. They kept on sinning. Though God has pronounced a blessing and a curse. A blessing upon those who forsake sin. And a curse upon those who continue in sin. Yet they choose the curse over the blessing. The wicked are unyielding and resolved. They kept on sinning. The heart of man by nature is like a garrison which holds out in war. Though articles of peace are offered, though it is straitly besieged and one bullet after another is shot, yet the garrison holds out. So the heart is a garrison which holds out against God. Though he uses entreaties, gives warnings, shoots bullets into the conscience, yet the garrison of the heart holds out. The man will not be reclaimed, He is said in Isaiah 48.4 to have a, a brow of brass in regard to his impudence and a sinew of iron in regard to his obstinance. They kept on sinning. But Thomas Watson continued with the cure to man's desperate condition of having a will that is bound by sin and unable to will otherwise. He said, the will is like a garrison which holds out against God The Spirit, with sweet violence, conquers, or rather changes it, making the sinner willing to have Christ upon any terms, to be ruled by him as well as saved by him. The Scriptures tie the words of our mouth to our will, either our redeemed will or the will before the new birth. When Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord in his blinding holiness, Isaiah reacted by pronouncing a woe upon himself and confessing that he was a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. From our wills come our choices, and part of our choices are our words. In the new birth, when our hearts are changed, our wills, which are downstream from our hearts, are changed, and therefore our words begin to change. I'll read next from Zephaniah's prophecy, Zephaniah, foretells about words being changed. Our language is an outward indication of our will. Once our will is changed by the new birth, our language can and should change. And I'll read from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure Speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. The Lord gives the prophet Zephaniah messages concerning the future, not only of Judah, but of the nations. Much of the prophetic book warns of the coming judgment of Judah and judgment of the nations that surround Judah. But in the midst of this warning of judgment, there's hope in chapter 3. The people will come and seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Verse 9 begins this theme of hope for the future. The Lord declares what is in the future. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. You know, there's some commentators who interpret this as taking place only in the new heavens and the new earth that are yet to come, and some of those commentators think this refers to everyone in the new heavens and the new earth speaking the same language, maybe Hebrew. I do think that we will all speak the same language in the coming age of the new heaven and the new earth, by the way, but I don't think that's the focus of this verse. If you're reading from the ESV translation, you may notice a heading supplied by the translators for this section, which is, The conversion of the nations. The context of the section points to the growth of the church. The turning of the people to the Lord is not limited to Judah alone, but extends to the nations. But here is where we can tie verse 9 to the subject of the new birth. In regeneration, our nature is changed, and therefore our will is changed. Our speech is an outworking of our will If our will is bent against God, our speech will reflect that. There is a tie between our nature and our will that results from our nature and our speech. In our unredeemed state, with the old nature, the old man, we did not have a will capable of what verse 9 calls pure speech. What the prophecy says is that the Lord will gather a people to himself from all nations and give them a new heart and a changed will. That changed will results in the outworking of our speech, which will be a pure speech. The speech of this people, the church, will no longer try to glorify idols or foolish philosophies. Instead, the speech of the church will allow the church, as it says in verse nine, to call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And notice, That this change in will resulting in pure speech is not something that's self-generated. People didn't just decide, I'm going to make a New Year's resolution, I'm going to make my own speech pure. Instead, the Lord declares, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I will change. This is an action that the Lord takes. The Lord is the one who gathers a church from the nations. The Lord is the one who does the work of changing their heart and will giving them a pure speech. A passage that we can tie into the one from Zephaniah is from Isaiah chapter 57. I'll read from that next. Isaiah 57. I'll read verses 15 to 19. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Verse 18, God says that he will do a great work. He will take people who formerly gave themselves to the way of their own heart and he will heal their ways. God will change their hearts, change their nature, and therefore their wills change. As a result of this change of will, God says that he is creating the fruit of the lips. Their former speech gave praise to what sinful people find praiseworthy, the idols of the world. But the Lord, when he changes our will, he creates the fruit of the lips. God works within us in regeneration to change our speech so that we give praise and thanksgiving to the true God. And one more passage on the fruit of the lips and how our speech changes with our changed will. I'll read from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, Paul, who I believe to be the author of Hebrews, instructs us to offer up a sacrifice. And this sacrifice, it's not an animal sacrifice. Christ at the cross has already offered up himself, and that work is forever finished. As Christians, we now offer a different kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that only the redeemed can give. This is the sacrifice of praise to God. This is the fruit of changed lips, speech that acknowledges his name. Before the new birth, our speech glorified other things, the vanity of things of this world. But with the new birth, our heart is recreated, our will is recreated, and the outworking of that is that the Lord gives us new speech. That new speech acknowledges the true God rather than the idols of the world. So to summarize, the heart before regeneration is corrupt because of sin, As Proverbs 4.23 says, from the heart flow the springs of life. The heart can be compared with the headwaters of rivers. If the headwaters are polluted and poisoned, the streams downstream from that will also be polluted and poisoned. The streams that come from the heart are the mind, the will, and the affections. The will is the internal power to make choices. And in our unredeemed state, we could not, choose from our own native will to have saving faith in Christ. It is only the monergistic work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth that changes our hearts and therefore changes our wills. And that's why in the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, regeneration comes logically before saving faith in Christ. Now to finish tonight, I want to quote From the end of one of the sermons of Spurgeon. And now, lastly, to you sinners, what is there to be said to you about this power of the Spirit? Why, to me, there is some hope for some of you. I cannot save you, I cannot get at you. I make you cry sometimes, you wipe your eyes, and it is all over. But I know my Master can. That is my consolation. Chief of sinners, there is hope for thee. This power can save you as well as anybody else. It is able to break your heart, though it is an iron one, to make your eyes run with tears, though they've been like rocks before. His power is able this morning, if he will, to change your heart, to turn the current of all your ideas, to make you at once a child of God, to justify you in Christ. There is power enough in the Holy Spirit. He is able to bring sinners to Jesus. He is able to make you willing in the day of His power. Are you willing this morning? Has He gone so far as to make you desire His name, to make you wish for Jesus? Then, O oh sinner, while He draws you, say, Draw me, I am wretched without Thee. Follow Him, follow Him. And while He leads, Tread you in his footsteps and rejoice that he has begun a good work in you, for there is an evidence that he will continue it even unto the end. And, O desponding one, put thy trust in the power of the Spirit. Rest on the blood of Jesus, and thy soul is safe, not only now but throughout eternity. God bless you, my hearers. Amen.